Justified, Episode 7. Dignity Justified illuminates African-American images, ideas, and individuals. Hi, I am Anita. And I'm Calvin. Mr. F. Lee D. Howe Sr. is the founder and CEO of Thankful Heritage Museum, located in Kernersville, North Carolina. F. Lee is a collector, genealogist, and historian who grew a personal collection into Thankful Heritage, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit organization that features African-American artifacts dating back to the 1700s. According to the museum's website, touring the museum is like taking a trip into a rich history of a people filled with pride and compassion. Listen as Calvin and Anita have an inspiring Good morning, Mr. and Howell. delightful conversation Good morning. with Mr. Howe. Good morning, F. Lee Let's Howell get started. Sr. How are you? I'm doing well and hope you all are doing well also. We're doing fine. Thank you. Mr. Howell is founder of the Museum Thankful Heritage. I think the name of your museum itself provides a great starting point for our conversation could you please share the significance of those two words, thankful and heritage, and tell us how the combination was deemed impactful enough to become the name of your museum? Well, great, great. Well, thankful heritage is a name that uh, comes from two different places. First of all, I am thankful for my history and heritage and I grew up in a place up in Wilkes County. It was called the Boomer, but our particular area was called Thankful. And our community is called Thankful. Our church is named Thankful. So um, I have a lot to be thankful for. And so with that, I was uh, studying the history and uh, I just love history. And with the bringing out and, and more and more black history, then whenever I started my uh, business in 93, then uh, the first name came up was Thankful and the History and was thinking about it. And I'm a genealogist and a, a historian. So I just chose that name, Thankful Heritage Incorporated. And then later it was changed to Museum. And so it was just how the name came about is I'm just so thankful. Is, thank, is Thankful history. in North Carolina? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. Thankful. Yes, I'm familiar with Thankful. Up there in that neck of the woods where big old Kings Creek, North Carolina is up there near <laughs> Caldwell County. Yeah, everybody knows where Kings Creek and Boomer and Thankful are, right? Well, uh, thank you for... I'm sorry. Thank you for clarifying that, Calvin, because many of our listeners uh, will not know that we're specifically talking about a region in North Carolina. So thank you guys for clarifying that. No problem. Mm -hmm. So, Effley, I'm going to transition more to our African-American culture. And of course, a lot of your collection has to do with African-American culture. African-American culture in, embraces the oral tradition. Um, you know, the, the spoken word where as youth, a lot of us were told to sit down and just listen to the grown folk talk. So in uh, African-American culture, oral tradition is a significant part of how one gen uh, generation learns about the experiences of another generation. Many of our families have shared stories and recipes and genealogy and life experiences. Tell us the importance of oral 
history in terms of what you do, what Thankful Heritage does, and what was it like having a joint interview with your father, Reverend Montreal Howell? Well, the history part and the, the culture is it's the way we've been able to hand down our history since we've been on this continent of, uh, you know, Western civilization of America. So for many years, we were not allowed to read and write anything. And as an old African Greedo uh, tradition, we passed it down through uh, different family members who told the story and if you ever watched the movie Roots, then you would see that going on. And that's how Alex Haley was able to trace his history back before we got all this DNA and Ancestry.com <laughs> and all the other modern ways to do it. So it's just been a tradition that family members would come, especially in summer times or come at uh, camp meetings or revivals and why they were was you know coming to the families, then they would start telling the stories of their childhoods and telling, talking about people that you know you may have only heard about once or twice, but then this put a face to that aunt or that uncle or that family from up north that migrated up there because of the great migration, and so it was just a wonderful way and is a wonderful way to continue the tradition of our African-American heritage. I think that's real important what you just said, Effley, in terms of it still is a way, because I know that for some, we lose sight of how today's technology can be used to carry on that tradition. You know, we're still in a COVID-19 pandemic, even though things are seemingly getting better. And I mentioned that to say that we've gone from the face-to-face meetings and working you know, in offices, a lot of us to doing the virtual and and some folks don't realize the opportunity to do a Zoom meeting with grandma or, you know, to do something using the technology that we have available to to get some of those oral um, stories, some of those oral um, facts and 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 sometimes myths that that are passed yeah. down. Well, that is that is so true. And, you know, our older people, our senior citizens, you know, they're like our diamonds and they're like the the library and they like the history. And once they have gone on to be with the ancestors, then, you know, we've lost all that history and all those questions. I was fortunate that my father lived to be 100 and he just told us so many things and we were able to record him and get so many uh, things. He wrote a book about his life and it was just a wonderful asset, but it was one that we had realized many years ago and the local college had realized too, because they gave him awards and talked to him about different things and recorded him. So it's real important for the youth today to record that history and get the firsthand account, the oral history, and then go uh, to Amazon or to the library and get the documentation that comes up uh, from those conversations that we're having about our families. Very, very true. So let's go back to that joint interview with your dad. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. 
Because uh, the Library of Congress, uh, I think it was the storytellers were were doing the exhibit. And so we ended up going to Asheville instead of doing it in Winston. But after we got there and got seated, then it was wonderful because we were supposed to interview each other. And so dead being dead, you know, he was getting his history in. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But as a historian and as someone who has researched, you know, his life in detail. Okay. All right. And and that's so good to know. Uh, as you mentioned, Mr. Howell, anyone can, can look at research or go to uh, sites such as the Library of Congress. And many museums are revisiting that idea. Uh, we had a lot of that done in the 30s. And also people recorded history based on major events, sometimes tragic events, where you can go back and listen to recordings about assassinations. But museums are revisiting the idea of using primary sources and listening to recordings about people who were actually there. And you had anthropologists like Zora Neale Hurston, who who went around the country, particularly in the South, and recorded a lot of history. So it's good to have primary source records, documents, and also recordings, as well as video. So I'm happy that you had that opportunity. And as you mentioned, you knew to do that prior to being invited to do it by a school. So those listeners out there who are thinking about their loved ones, uh, not just because they're older, it's good to record anybody's history in terms of what they're doing. They're young people who are accomplishing many, many things. So that's just a good thing to do. Thank you for sharing that, Mr. Howell. Oh, yes. Being mobile, having a website presence and a physical museum for in-house showcasing, that has allowed Thankful Heritage to have a wide range of experiences with various businesses, churches, and organizations throughout the region. This means that persons with a keen interest in culture and history, as well as those who do not have such an interest in history, also share a common place of learning at your museum. And that means that you, Mr. Howe, have had great conversations with all kinds of visitors. That being the case, what museum items lead to the most interesting talking points from those who better understand history and culture? And what items are most intriguing to those who may not be that interested in history, but once they have an opportunity to roam around and look at all of the items in your museum, what kind of conversations are you having with them? Old school versus new school, maybe. Okay. Well, our journey through civil rights is always one of uh, joys and pain. And so as we look at the transformation out of reconstruction and into the fight for civil rights and trying to integrate the military, integrate the restaurants, integrate the uh, transportation systems throughout the United States, then the Jim Crow signs were many places and a Jim Crow sign always gets people talking and the older ones are saying, well, this is what I used to see as a child. And then the younger ones, I've never seen one. You know, this is what I've always heard about. So this is one of the things where, you know, a person says, well, you cannot drink that water. You cannot go to that restroom. And so that brings about a lot of conversation. And as we move, uh, you know, from there into the uh, rights that we do have for integrating the first blacks to do this and the first blacks to do that, then it's just uh, an amazing 
transformation where when you come through the museum, the physical one, then you can see where we came from as families and as workers of the fields to working inside the plants and starting our own businesses and, you know, things like that. So there's a, a lot and it's, it can be hurting sometimes to see the dogs that are on the people or seeing people lynched or seeing some of the other things that were done to us. But then, you know, we try to soften out everything and make it well-rounded with things like the stamps, you know, blacks, the first blacks that are on stamps, the first blacks in advertisements and all the way up to the uh, present. Because usually when you talk about these things, it's before Dr. King was assassinated and after Dr. King was assassinated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And before a lot of corporations were not open, but after a lot of corporations did open up. So visitors have an opportunity to explore the full history of African-American history and culture, and you take them on a journey from real events, actual events, and many events in our history that are tragic and uncomfortable, but then you take them to the legacy items of perseverance and successful accomplishments. So I'm sure that that is particularly exciting for anyone who visits the museum as I have. Yes, well, well, yes, because a lot of times, you know, we think about where did we start? And, you know, we started from uh, Mother Africa and started from, you know, great people, pharaohs and kings and queens. And then we come to America and then through being an enslaved person, then that history is one thing. But there was still our magnificent history that we left a long time ago that normally we don't get to talk about. And I don't spend a lot of time with that, but I do include some of that in there. And then we, we come on down the road to our uh, present day and the presidents, the vice president of the United States. And we look at the activity after George Floyd. And so it's a history that we, we can go back, but we can come ahead and we can talk and so I'm just excited about it. And thank you all for this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I want to correct myself, Mr. Howe. When I saw your exhibit, it was actually at a local church, not at the museum itself. I don't think you had the museum at that time, the physical plant itself. But I, I saw the, the collection at, at a church. Right. And we're still uh, in the process of uh, getting that physical uh, building. And so we are searching now and, you know, trying to get a uh, one place that we can put everything under one roof right now. And then from that, we will have that permanent museum. And so it's been 26 years uh, next month that we've mm -hmm. been on this search and to get this museum. So it's a, been a wonderful life experience. Interesting. And the perseverance that you've shown over the 26 years, Effley, is inspiring and encouraging. So I know that that brick and mortar goal that you're aiming for is going to happen. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of time. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to read a little bit, uh, Effley, of an article that I saved. This, it was written by a, an African-American gentleman named John McWhorter. And he was writing it for the Los Angeles Times. It's, it's from a while ago, from 2004. But the title of the article is Why I'm Black, Not African-American. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm just going to read one paragraph and I want to get your feedback because it ties directly into the answer to Anita's question a moment ago. So here's the paragraph. Living descendants of slaves in America neither knew their African ancestors nor even have elder relatives who knew them. Most of us worship in Christian churches. Our cuisine is more Southern U.S. than Senegalese, which, of course, references the nation of Senegal in West Africa. Starting with ragtime and jazz, we gave America intoxicating musical beats based on African concepts of rhythm, but with melody and harmony based on Western traditions. So his whole premise in this article, Effley, is I'm black, first of all, not African-American and black with a capital D. And he is basically implying that we have been so Westernized since 1619, when the first slaves arrived on the shores, officially, that really referencing our African roots is, quote unquote, irrelevant, uh, which sort of ties in with some folks who say, why haven't uh, a Black History Month? You know, we're all Americans, right? Can we just just sort of blend into this melting pot? What what would be your response to that that way of thinking? Okay, well. Whenever I first started this journey, I remember black ladies. Matter of fact, there was two of them with bonnets on their head. (laughs) This woman told me, she said, well, I'm colored. I'm not Negro. So I was like, okay, I see you. Then people (laughs) say, well, I'm black and I'm not a Negro. Mm. And then they go on and say, well, I'm Afro-American. I'm not African-American. But you don't find Italians saying that they're not from Italy or German Germans not saying they're not from Germany because it was against the our against the law for us to learn to read and write and become one and, and keep our music and our religion, then we were taken away from all that. But in the end, whether you're just being woke awoke now to the fact that you're Black and African-American, then, you know, you have to look at where your history goes back to. There's no black land. There's no Negro land. There's no colored land. But when they started to send Africans back to Africa, talked about colonializing them, then a lot of them said, well, hey, we're colored. We're not Africans. Mm. So Mm. then from there, you know, it's like, okay, well, the colors are being treated bad, the NAACP, and, you know, it's early, early uh, talk was of color, but then it started saying, well, hey, we're not that way. We're Negroes. We are educated. We're WB Du Bois, and we're uh, better than the uh, former colors that Booker T. Washington and were. We're the new Negroes and Harlem Renaissance and all mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. So we just became, you know, Negroes who, who act different. Probably a lot could pass the brown paper bag test. But then again, you know, <laughs> we went on and we became, you know, something other. But then in 1966, during the march, well, 65, march from Selma to Montgomery, then here comes Stokely Carmichael saying we're black, black power. We have we need that power and the power is within us. So we became all of a sudden, you know, Afros and uh, the black 
Panthers and, you know, the uh, Afro Sheen and, and all that. You can go back to our history, back to 1964, 63. We were still talking colored and Negro and people were still trying to get a hold of what it, what our culture is, how we're going to pull this thing together. Right. And so then as we became black and what our black is beautiful, the, the Olympics with the guys holding up their fist and James Brown coming at say it loud and black and I'm proud. And, you know, us walking around, going places, seeing seeing people that look like us. And we put our fist up and we knew that, hey. This is us. You know, we're all black. We're proud and soul train. Now you got a soul train on it. We're doing dances and, you know, we're wearing dashikis and we, you know, coming up with the Kwanzaa and, you know, we're doing doing all this thing. So we were getting an identity that we needed because we were being put down for so long in so many different ways. So to more or less answer this man and, and talk about uh, what are you black or African-American or what, but, you know, we all need to help get our community together. We all need to celebrate. We all need to, uh, you know, come out and, and have these discussion on who we are and not just exclude people who say that they're black or exclude people who say that they are Negroes or, you know, we need to be able to have these conversations, especially with our youth to find out who they are, because a lot of them do not care for or the old uh, political, religious ways that things have been done. And so a lot of them are tuning out. Mm. Too. Mm. Well, Mr. Howell, that is so interesting that you just took us down memory lane. And I'm sure listeners, as you were talking, uh, could also think about songs and hear the music because, you know, music is very much a part of our journey. It is, it is the artist and the arts that articulate mm -hmm. and showcase our vision. I was just thinking about something in my collection. It is called The Freeman, and it is the first illustrated African-American newspaper owned owned African-American illustrated newspaper. And their heading starts off with whether you call yourself colored, Afro-American or whatever. Uh, and it starts that way to say, mm. no matter how you identify yourself, some would say whether you identify yourself today as biracial or whatever, not to get caught up in categorizing because so many of those names were given to us. I look at my Dred Scott article and his children are referring to him in a manner that today I would say is derogatory, but they're simply repeating what they were called during that time. So a part mm -hmm. of the evolution of names and how we, we regard ourselves has a lot to do with names that were imposed and labels that were imposed upon us in the same manner in which race has been uh, imposed upon us. So thank you so much for articulating that. I just enjoyed listening to that. But because of time, I could stay in that area. <laughs> I guess I can stay in that lane a long time. But because of time, I'm going to go on to something that I've been thinking about along my collecting journey. I've had conversations mm -hmm. like this with remarkably interesting collectors. I think about mm -hmm. Jeanette Carson, a pioneer in Black memorabilia. My mentor yeah. is Danny, who has expertise in slave-related artifacts. Mr. Arnsey, who's a mega collector, who has even owned museums in a wax museum. I've recently had conversations with Deborah Britt. She is the creative creator of the National Doll Museum, and many others who specialize in other genre of collecting including stamps and toys, cookie jars, photographs, etc. I even have a memory of a Caucasian collector 
who uh, this was in Gaithersburg, Maryland, who was so moved by the legacy of abolitionists and orator Frederick Douglass that he had a large tattoo of Douglass on his arm. Mm -hmm. By the way, I had read about Jeanette Carson, subscribed to her magazine and also knew about the show in Gaithersburg, Maryland, but I never attended until I spoke with you and you recommended it. So I'm certain that you've had an opportunity over your years of collecting to have conversations with all kinds of individuals. So what collections or collectors have most intrigued you and how would you categorize your type of collecting? And for our listeners, what would you suggest for African-American families to start preserving for generations to come? Wow. (laughs) This is great. Okay. The first thing is I would suggest just start where you are at your house, your magazines, your books. If your parents have them or grandparents had the Langston Hughes and uh, Maya Angelou and uh, some of those or the older Ebony's or Jets, get those because there's history in those that we need to preserve. And, you know, just start there and then stamps, you know, look at some of the old letters that you may have. You may find some of the older black stamps there. And then when you get time, it's always good to go to the antique stores and go to the uh, you can't even go to some of the flea markets. But it is just wonderful to have been able over these years to meet some collectors and to go to the show in Maryland and to be able to uh, present shows and exhibits. One of the things that I like about the history is that if once you start showing people the history, then people start telling you about things they have and about being in certain places. And it's always a good opportunity when you can start showing people actually dates and places with newspapers, magazines, or books. And the older people say, well, hey, I remember when that happened. But the younger people say, well, we just covered that in school. And so it's it's always just a wonderful opportunity to teach, which is our catchphrase at Thankful Heritage. Anytime you can have a few people come together and look at some things, whether it's stamps, whether it's lunch boxes, whether it's uh, some of the sports memorabilia, if it's presented in, in the right way, then You can always have that conversation about movie posters and uh, newspapers and people say, yeah, I remember when that happened. And just like this uh, George Floyd, everybody who's alive now, who's four or five, six years old, they will remember George Floyd to some extent, whether it's him or whether it's the reaction to what happened to him. And so it'll be a, a teaching point. And I hate that it's a hurtful thing, but a lot of times when we cover African-American history, then civil rights movement, then there is a lot of hurt there. But then there's usually growth. We have to look at the growth that came out of that also. Powerful, powerful, powerful statement, Effley. And as Anita alluded to, mindful of the time, I'm going to give you a a shorter version of a question. (laughs) Um, We know that collaborating with other community organizations is essential in creating more awareness of the importance of acknowledging the contributions and sacrifices of African-Americans. Can you share about partnerships that Thankful Heritage has been a part of and how the collaboration is helping you to fulfill your mission, your organization's mission? 
Well, yes, yes. I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to work with some churches, local churches who helped me and helped fund and said, hey, we have a place here where you can set up. And and it's amazing. Anytime you have something that you want to show, you need a place to show it. And so that helped me put things in perspective and do setups. And so uh, that was great that the local churches, especially New Jerusalem, uh, helped us out a whole lot. And there's others too many to, to call. But then also we had funding from some of the nonprofit organizations from the Z. Smith Reynolds and uh, Winston-Salem Foundation. And uh, we were able to get the funding to do setups and go to the churches, communities, and uh, schools and be able to set up and talk and listen and document. And so that's been wonderful. And uh, some of the local corporations, major corporations, uh, Pepsi, Ralph Lauren Polo, uh, Bank of America, a lot of these organizations have diversity programs that they didn't have in the past, but now there's more African-Americans who are heading their uh, HRs and personnel mm-hmm. departments, and they are able to bring in organizations that look more like us and right, we're able right. to, to do things, you know. And so the arts councils, and it's just a wonderful opportunity. And as my daughter says, it's a wonderful time to be alive. And we can reach out and try to collaborate and partner with a lot of these organizations, the local TV stations, the local radio stations are are helping us, you know, get our word out. And so I'm getting ready to retire so I can start doing this full time. So, you know, God is good. He blesses. This is true. Mr. Howell, this is where we open up the mic uh, and provide time for you to share any other information about yourself or about the museum's programming and perhaps even how our listeners can visit or book events with you. Great. Okay. Well, a thankful heritage museum is a spectacular uh, museum that uses historical artifacts to teach African-American history in the schools, the communities, the businesses, and you can go to thankfulheritagemuseum.org online to get us. Our phone number is 336-995-5146. We also have podcasts. You can go to YouTube and go to a Thankful Heritage Museum. And uh, we have several podcasts there that are also coming from our website, and some may have already circulated in and out of it. And we're developing the Instagram and uh, the other uh, more current forms of communication, social communication. So uh, I would just like to say that it is just wonderful to be able to go in a classroom with little kids and see their eyes when you start talking about things and uh, talking about how race relations go. And it's also wonderful to see the high school, college kids come in and see all the different movies, movies on the posters that they may have seen and they start talking about it. So it's just a, a wonderful opportunity. Thankful Heritage started as an aid for the school system 
and then spread because the black churches or the black schools who had been shut down because of integration started having reunions. So it's wonderful going there and talking about their histories. But it's just wonderful to see this walk in life of history that has come about over my 64 years, as well as before me, and it gives me an opportunity to collect and document so I can pass it on to the next generation that's coming behind me. Well, you do a valuable work. It is appreciated. It is enlightening. And even though you're saying you're going to retire in a year so you can do it full time, I bet <laughs> I, I bet you that won't mean sit, sitting on the porch drinking coffee all day. <laughs> no, no, no. That definitely means what they say. If you enjoy it, you never work a day in your life. So it'll be being able to read some of those books and line up some of these uh, things, newspapers and posters and be able to talk to a lot of people about history and about them being in some of the uh, books from the 40s and 50s. Fascinating. Fascinating. Effley Howell Sr., founder of Thankful Heritage. It is a nonprofit 501c3 organization that as uh, with that status, you can donate to it. You can Go to the website and engage Effley and his team in meeting your needs when it comes to sharing some of the history and, and relevance of African-American culture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to be with Dignity Justified. It has been truly inspiring. You can find out more about how Dignity Justified uses art, artifacts, ideas, and individuals by going to the website, DignityJustified.com. This podcast is sponsored by the Enterprise Conference and Event Center, a part of the S.G. Atkins Community Development Corporation. The Enterprise Center, where Carol Davis serves as executive director, is a business incubator, event center, and community education building located at 1922 South Martin Luther King Jr. Drive in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. No matter your community, civic, or corporate needs, the Enterprise Center's state-of-the-arts conference and banquet facility offers flexible sizing capacity, for hosting and accommodating your next function. Please visit their website at the Enterprise Conference and Event Center. Visit Dignity Justified at DignityJustified.com.